What's the best meal you've ever eaten? Think about it for a moment. What's the best meal you've ever had? Well, I would be willing to wager that you probably didn't eat that meal by yourself. It's probably a meal you enjoyed with somebody, probably a significant time in your life. What's the best meal you've ever eaten? Well, this morning we're going to study a wonderful meal that is in the future for all those that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what makes this meal, this festival, so wonderful, this feast, if you will, so wonderful, is not the food we'll be eating, but who we'll be eating with. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, as we continue our study through the book of Revelation, we are looking this summer at seven blessings that are scattered throughout this book. Revelation Chapter 19, we're going to read verse 9. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Well, I tell you, I'm blessed by the music this morning. Wow, what a great uh, song from our choir and congregational music. Before the first service this morning, I saw Joey, and I, I knew what I was going to preach. I said, Joey, if you're not saved, today's going to be the day. And he knew what we were going to sing. He said, if you're not ready to preach, today's going to be the day. You'll be ready to preach after we get done singing. And he was right. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. So grateful, so grateful for grace, so grateful for the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins, so grateful for your presence, your unfailing compassion and watch care over our lives. We just stand in awe of who you are and what you've done for us. And we ask that you would meet with us today in, in a mighty way. Lord, even in an unusual way, Father, manifest your presence in our midst. Touch our hearts, change our lives for the glory and the fame and the renown of your great name. It's all about you. Lord, I pray you'd establish my steps today in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Revelation was a book written by the Apostle John. At the end of the first century, John was uh, sent to a barren prison island called Patmos for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And during his time on that island, the Lord appeared to him and gave him a series of four visions, which he recorded, and we call those visions the book of Revelation. Now, we call the book Revelation because in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there in the original Greek language is apocalypsis. It means unveiling or uncovering. So the Lord graciously unveiled some things for John to write down, for him to see, for the first century church to understand, and for his church today to understand. I believe that most of the book of Revelation deals with future events. It deals with the end times scenario. So there's much for us to consider and 
to devote our attention to so that we can be ready for what is coming. And we've been working our way through these seven blessings that are found throughout the book. And as we come to each blessing, we try to kind of step back and look at the general context of what's happening so we can understand the verse correctly. Well, to kind of catch up to speed with uh, what's happening here in chapter 19, we need to be reminded that much of the middle part of the book of Revelation deals with the, the events called the Great Tribulation. The Bible teaches that in the future there's coming a time upon this earth uh, such as never been seen before. It will be a time of, of God's judgments and wrath being poured out upon the earth. It will be a time of great devastation. And we talked a lot about the Great Tribulation last week. Well, uh, starting in chapter 16, we see that during this tribulation period, uh, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet uh, deceive multitudes of people and begin to raise a great army to make war against God. By the way, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's what's happening in the great tribulation. They're trying to raise an army against the Lord. In Revelation chapter 18, we see that God uh, judges Babylon. Now, we've, we've said that Babylon is a symbol of the world powers that refuse to submit to God. So we see that all of those who refuse to submit to God uh, are destroyed. They come to an end. Their power is taken away. And in chapter 19, we see that finally, the Lord himself will return to the earth and will judge Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and overthrow the great army they have raised. And you know how Jesus does it? He does it by speaking a word. There's this great army assembled to fight against the Lord, and Jesus comes back and speaks, and the battle's over. That's, that's what's going to happen. That's what we see happening in chapter 19. But there's an, an interlude found in chapter 19. The scene shifts from the tribulation period to heaven. And we see the interlude start there in verse 6. Look what it says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, why this interlude? We're talking about tribulation and the Antichrist and gathering of world powers and Babylon and all this, all these different things. Why is there this shift to heaven to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, it's as if the Lord wants us to understand that in the midst of the, the suffering and the tribulation and the judgments of God that are coming... There is something wonderful for God's people to look forward to. The book of Revelation is not all doom and gloom. There are some really wonderful things that the Lord wants us to anticipate. So we want to understand this blessing because it's something for us to look forward to. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now to understand this blessing, we need to understand that marriage is used throughout the scriptures often as a metaphor for salvation. As a matter of fact, sometimes we see that the church is referred to as a spiritual building. We see that Jesus is referred to as the, the chief cornerstone, and when people place their faith in Jesus Christ and are converted, they're saved, 
God adds them to the spiritual building that he is building. In other words, God is building something beautiful as his bride grows, as more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, as his church expands. So sometimes the the Bible refers to the church as a building. Sometimes the Bible refers to the church as a body. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see that the church is referred to as a body of uh, the body of Christ, and all of us have a different role in the body. Some is, some people are hands, some people are feet, but we all have a role that we are to perform a spiritual gift that we are to employ in the service of the Lord. So sometimes the the, the church is called the body of Christ, and then sometimes the church is called the bride of Christ. Building body. Bride, And all of those are metaphors that communicate different things concerning what it means to be saved. So to understand this, this blessing of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we need to understand marriage because it's a picture of our salvation. And to understand marriage as it's intended in the Bible, we need to understand first century marriage. What did marriage look like in the first century? I want to talk about that and then draw parallels with our salvation experience, our experience with Jesus Christ. So I've given you four steps, if you will, four phases of first century marriages. I'm going to make application to our own relationship with Jesus this morning. Number one, I want you to see there is an an engagement. Engagement. The first phase of a marriage occurred when the bridegroom would pay a price to the bride's parents. So a man would come to a family and say, I want to marry that girl and I'm going to give a a down payment, if you will, a dowry to declare my intentions to marry your daughter. And, and if the parents agreed, uh, the, the, the man and, his, uh, and the family's uh, daughter, they would enter into an engagement period. First century, it was a, called a betrothal period, uh, like an engagement that we know in our day and time. This is the case uh, that we see in the Gospels when Mary and Joseph... Uh, are uh, journeying to Bethlehem. You remember, Mary is found to be with child. Not by Joseph. They were not married. They were engaged. They were betrothed. That's why Joseph was so perplexed. Why is Mary pregnant? We're not married yet. We're, we're betrothed. We're engaged. But we know that Mary was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she uh, conceived the Son of God in her womb, fully God, fully man, And we know that that is the doctrine of the virgin birth. But that betrothal period is what was happening between Mary and uh, Joseph. Well, did you know that our salvation experience is much like an engagement, much like a betrothal to King Jesus? Matter of fact, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul writes to the believers in Corinth. He writes in verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So he's saying, when I led you to Christ, when I preached the gospel and you were saved, it was as if you were betrothed to the bridegroom. You were betrothed, engaged to Christ. That's a picture of what what it's like when we first meet Jesus. I was saved when I was nine years old. My pastor came and talked to me in my house, at my dining room table. I remember he walked me through the gospel, and I saw my need for a Savior, that I was a sinner that needed salvation, and I called upon the name of the Lord. And at that moment, I entered into a, a betrothal with the bridegroom, with Jesus Christ. I became a part of the bride of Christ. 
Now, remember, in the first century, the, the man that wanted to be married would give a dowry or a down payment. He would pay something. So here's the question. Did Jesus pay anything for his bride? Did Jesus pay anything to purchase us or to declare his intentions for us? And the answer is yes. If you look in your notes, Jesus shed his blood to pay the infinite price for his bride. Now, isn't it interesting that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, the marriage supper is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we know that when Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God, it pictures his sacrificial work on the cross. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish people in, in, uh, in living out the sacrificial system would take a lamb and they would sacrifice it. Its blood would be shed to make atonement for the sins of the people. In other words, they were reminded every time a lamb was sacrificed that an innocent animal had to die for the sins of the guilty. And all of that in the Old Testament pictured the ultimate sacrifice when Jesus came to this earth and went to the cross and shed his innocent blood for our sin, for our guilt. Jesus died on the cross for us. That's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking up uh, for the first time, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In heaven we see that as people are gathered around the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So anytime you see Jesus referred to as the Lamb, it speaks of his sacrificial work, his death on the cross for our sins. So did Jesus pay a price for his bride? Absolutely. Jesus shed his own blood. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from, the fu- from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus shed his blood so that we could be saved. He paid a great price so that we could be his bride. Engagement. But also, this payment that the the man would make in the first century to a woman's family was intended to convey, I'm really serious about this. I'm so serious that I want to make this girl my bride. I'm giving this money. The the money was meant as a guarantee. So here's the question. Do we have a guarantee that that when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we are one day going to be his in heaven? The answer is yes. Christ has given us a guarantee. He's given us a guarantee that he will follow through on the engagement And that guarantee is the Holy Spirit. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the Bible says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of, that one day Christ is going to complete our redemption. He's going to come back and take us to heaven. Now that word guarantee in the original Greek language uh, means down payment or deposit or, or earnest money. So when we, when we meet Jesus for the first time, when we are saved, 
Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to come, on, to come and live on the inside of us. And the Holy Spirit is there to seal you and to guarantee that one day Jesus Christ will come back for you. So we all have, as Christians, the Holy Spirit living in our lives as a guarantee. As a matter of fact, this word in the Greek language is used in modern-day Greek to speak of an engagement ring. But what's an engagement ring for? It's to show that you're serious, right? When I bought an engagement ring for Claire and put it on her finger, I was saying, hey, I'm serious. We're, really, we're going to get married. This is the real deal, all right? This is, this is not boyfriend-girlfriend stuff, all right? This is, we're going to get married. It's meant, to, it's meant to convey that we are serious. And when Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, he's telling us, one day I will return for my bride. I will complete your redemption. So the first phase of a first century wedding was the engagement or betrothal period. The second phase is what I'll call preparation. Preparation. This phase consisted of the bride readying herself for the marriage. So a man would come to a family and say, I want to marry your daughter. Here's the, here's the down payment. Here's the earnest money. Here's how serious I am. And they would agree, and the, the man would leave. The, the groom would leave, if you will. And the bride would begin to prepare herself for the wedding day. Now here's what we need to understand. In a like manner, Jesus prepares us for the marriage supper. He prepares us for that great, wonderful celebration in heaven. As a matter of fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Now watch this. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy in and without blemish. So the Bible teaches that as Christians, we are the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the bridegroom. And what he's doing in our lives right now is he is washing us. He is preparing us. He is sanctifying us for the day when we will see him face to face. Jesus is getting his bride ready. Now, how does he do that? How does he get us ready? This, this is called theologically sanctification. When you meet Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are saved, your sins are forgiven, and then you embark upon a process whereby Jesus changes your life. That's called sanctification. And we ask the question, how does Jesus sanctify us? How does he change us? How is he getting us ready? Well, he says there in verse 26, he does it by the washing of water with the word. So listen, sanctification happens as the Spirit of God living in us renews our mind with the word of God that is before us. And if you are a Christian, that's precisely what Jesus is doing in your life. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to renew your mind so that you might be changed, that you might be made more like Jesus. He is washing you with the water of His Word. Isn't that glorious? Some of you are here today say, I didn't know He's doing that. He is. If you're a believer, that's what He's doing. He's washing you with the water of His Word. And so Jesus has a role 
in preparing his bride for the day when we will see him face to face. But, but listen, we have a role too. Jesus has a part to play, but we also have a part to play. With God's help, we prepare ourselves for the marriage supper. Now turn back to Revelation 19. I want to show you this. This is highly significant. Revelation chapter 19. The Bible says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, watch this, has made herself ready. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus is making us ready. But here in Revelation 19, we're making ourselves ready. The bride is preparing herself. How did she do that? It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What does the fine linen represent? We'll look at the next phrase. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So here's how it works. Jesus washes you with the water of his word. He changes you. And then as a believer in Jesus Christ, you respond to what God is doing in you by living for his glory, by doing righteous deeds. And as you do righteous deeds, you are preparing yourself to see Jesus face to face. And so let me say it like this. Christ has a role, and we have a role in our preparation to see the bridegroom one day. Now, here's what's interesting. In Bible times, customarily, people wore two types of garments. They would wear uh, an inner tunic and an outer robe. And I believe these two garments correspond to the garments we will be arrayed in at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we get to this marriage supper, this marriage feast, I believe that that the bride, Christ's people, will have two types of garments on. The first is what I'm going to call imputed righteousness. Now don't let that theological phrase fool you. It's very, very important. Don't be distracted by the phrase. Imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is a gift that you receive from Jesus at the moment that you are saved. The Bible teaches that when we meet Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, not only are our sins forgiven, but Jesus gives us his perfection, his perfect righteousness as a gift. It's like we put it on like a robe. We are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called imputed or alien or foreign righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's righteousness that has been given to us as a free gift. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. So when you meet Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he takes your sin and pays for it. And you get his righteousness as a gift. So when the Father looks at your life, not only does he see you as completely forgiven, he sees you as as righteous as his son. Now, we don't deserve that. That's a gift from Jesus Christ. Look over in Matthew 22. I believe that this is spoken of in a parable that Jesus shares. Matthew chapter 22, a parable of a wedding feast. The context here is 
A king is sending out his servants to invite people to a great wedding feast. He says there in verse 9, Go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, there will be people that think one day they're going to stand before God because they're a good person. Listen to me. No one's good enough to stand before a holy God. We are all sinners in desperate need of forgiveness, every one of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you're going to stand before God one day, you've got to have on the right garment. And I believe this garment here speaks of the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift at the moment of conversion, imputed, alien, given righteousness. So I believe the inner tunic could correspond to that righteousness. But in Bible times, people would also wear an outer robe. I believe this speaks of good works as followers of Christ. Good works as followers of Christ. Turn back to Revelation 19 with me. Revelation 19. Look what it says in verse 8. Revelation 19 verse 8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so he says there that at the marriage supper, those that are, that are present will have on fine linen, which are righteous deeds of those that know Christ. So when you're saved, your sins are forgiven, you're given the gift of Perfect righteousness that robes you, that covers you, that surrounds you. And then you embark upon a journey of serving Jesus. Empowered by the Spirit, led by the Word of God, encouraged by the church, you and I are called to do righteous deeds. We're called to serve Jesus, right? Do things for Him. And as we do things for Jesus, we are preparing ourselves for the marriage supper. We're making our outer garments more and more beautiful. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus has a role and you have a role. Jesus gives you that inner garment of imputed righteousness, but you live for Jesus, serve him faithfully, and you are making your outer garment more and more and more and more beautiful. And so life is preparation to meet Jesus. Here's the question. Are you preparing by doing the righteous deeds that God has called you to. Preparation. But there's a third phase in the first century marriage. There's engagement and there's preparation. But third, there is the wedding. The wedding. The third step in the process usually occurred when the bridegroom, accompanied by his male friends, went to the house of the bride at midnight, creating a torchlight parade through the streets. That's pretty cool, isn't it? The bride would know in advance this was going to take place and she would be ready with her maidens. And they would all join the parade and end up at the bridegroom's home. This custom in the first century was the basis of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13. So it's this beautiful picture. It was time for the bride 
to receive her bridegroom, time for the bridegroom to go and get his bride. And he would go through the streets with his groomsmen. She would be waiting there with her bridesmaids. And then they would meet up and, and go through the streets in celebration. That is the wedding. And you say, Wade, how does that speak to us? If, if marriage is a metaphor for salvation, how does it speak to us? Here's how it speaks to us. One day, Jesus is coming for his bride. One, you don't know when it is. I don't know when it is. But one day... If, if you are part of the bride of Christ, if you're a Christian, one day Jesus Christ is coming back for you and coming back for all his bride. Now listen, it's significant that Jesus calls the church the bride of Christ. Jesus loves his bride. He loves the church. I've heard people say before, you know, I, I like Jesus, I, don't, I just don't like church. What? That, that might be like you saying to me, hey, wait, I like you, okay, I don't like Claire. That's not going to go so well. We're not, we're not going to be friends. We're a package deal, buddy. Wade and Claire come together. And that's just not going to work out so well if you like me, you don't like my, my, my bride. So how much sense does it make to say, well, Jesus, I think you're great. I just don't like your bride. Doesn't work out so well, does it? Jesus loves his bride. And one day, the great bridegroom, the King of Kings, the Lord and Lord, the Lord of Lords, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God, he will come back and get his bride. That's pictured in the bridegroom going to get his bride in the first century. So there will be a marriage, and then fourth and last, there will be celebration. After the marriage in the fourth century, there's a big party. After the, the, the wedding, the coming together of the man and the woman with their bridesmaids and bridegrooms, there was a marriage supper which might go on for days as illustrated by the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. A, a great feast, a great festival, a great party would take place to celebrate the marriage between the bridegroom and the bride, which is what I believe is pictured in Revelation 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. One day Jesus Christ will come back for his bride. He'll gather his church. And after that there will be a great celebration in heaven called the marriage supper. We will experience at that moment fullness of joy in the presence of our Savior. That's why it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. Notice that in the description of the marriage supper in Revelation 19, there's no mention of what kind of food we're going to eat. Now, I bet it's going to be good. But the emphasis is not on what we're eating. The emphasis is on who we're eating it with. <laughs> we get to celebrate in the presence of King Jesus. Celebration. What a day that will be. That's why the Lord says, blessed are those. Blessed are those. Oh, the joy of, oh, the happiness of those invited to the marriage supper. Jim Hamilton writes, we can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. 
Never has a father more wealthy planned a bigger feast. Never has a more noble son honored his father in everything. Never has a man treated his bride to be more appropriately. Never has a more powerful pledge like an engagement ring been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to this bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Great will be the rejoicing. Great will be the exaltation. There will be no limit to the glory given to the Father through the Son on that great day. That's why it says in Revelation 19, let us rejoice, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. That will be a glorious, glorious, joyful, joyful day. And so we see here the picture of celebration. Christ, the bridegroom, gathered with all of the redeemed through the ages, his bride, at this marriage supper. Listen, I can't wait. Can you imagine? I can't wait. Now, I've got two closing questions, just very briefly for you to consider. The first one is this. When will this celebration take place? When will the celebration take place? Now we get to the interesting stuff. Folks hear about Revelation, this is what they want to hear. Wait, how's this going to unfold? What's the order of events? Well, let me just give you some major events of the end times. Major events that are going to happen. And and I believe these things are literally going to happen. These are, are literal, actual events that are going to happen in the future. For example, the Great Tribulation. Seven years. Resurrection of the dead believers in Christ and rapture of the church. Second coming when Jesus returns. The judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that one day Christ's people will stand before him at the judgment seat. Not in reference to where they will spend eternity. If they're saved, they're going to heaven when they die. But this judgment will be in reference to how we lived our Christian life. It'll be a judgment that that allows Jesus to dispense the proper rewards for our service for him. And I believe there will also be regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. We've seen in Revelation 19.9, there's this description of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That event's going to happen. There's a, a battle described, the great battle of Armageddon on the plains of Megiddo. We see there's a, a millennial reign of Christ. More on that in future sermons. A final defeat of Satan. Resurrection of the unsaved, the great white throne of judgment when those, those whose names are not found in the, in the Lamb's book of life will be judged and cast into that eternal lake of fire. The great white throne of judgment, terrifying. And then there will be an establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Now listen, those are the events that are going to happen. They're, they're future tense right now, but they're going to happen. Now you need to understand, there's debate on the order. All right? And there are really godly Bible scholars that disagree on the order of these events. For example, some people believe that the rapture of the church, when Jesus comes back to raise the dead believers in Christ from the grave and to gather his church together at that same moment, some people believe that will happen at the beginning of the tribulation period. Some people believe it will happen in the middle of the tribulation period. Some people believe it will happen... After the tribulation period. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Some people believe that 
if, if they believe in a pre-trib rapture, that this marriage of the land happens during the revelation, I'm sorry, during the tribulation period. He raptures his church, and while God's judgments are being poured out upon the earth, the church is going through the judgment seat of Christ and, and is enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb before Jesus Christ returns. So some people believe that's when it's going to happen. Some people believe the marriage supper of the Lamb happens after the tribulation. Some people believe it happens to kick off the millennium. So there are a lot of different views over the, the precise ordering of these events. Now, now listen to me. None of this is going to be on the entrance exam to get into heaven. We're not going to stand before God when he's going to say, okay, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? And, and explain it to me, defend it from the scripture. No, we go to heaven based upon the blood of Jesus, amen? These are things that are interesting to study and learn and, to, and discuss together. But don't miss the point. The point is, we need to be ready. These things are going to happen. If you look there in your notes, there's a a debate among Bible-believing Christians as to when this event will occur, but there's no debate over whether it will occur. It's going to happen. Listen, don't you want to be there? It's going to happen. Don't you want to be there? Don't get caught up in the timeline. It's going to happen just like God wants it to happen. But be ready for the event. Which leads me to the second question. Who is invited Who's invited? Who gets to go to this marriage feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb, this great celebration? Who gets to go? Here's the short answer. All the peoples of the earth. All the peoples. I I, I use peoples, plural, on purpose. That means all the people groups, all the the ethnic groups tribes, all the different languages and all ethnic backgrounds are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Say, wait, can you defend that biblically? Well, in Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9, the Bible says prophetically, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So we see here that the Lord is preparing a feast for representatives from every tribe, every tongue, every background, every ethnicity, every nation. All peoples are invited. Over in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus meets a centurion, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And the Roman centurion had a servant who was very, very ill. And he asked Jesus to heal this servant. And he says, you don't even need to go with me. Jesus, I know if you just speak a word, my servant will be healed. And the Bible says that Jesus is wowed by this Gentile's faith. And listen to what he says upon this occasion. When Jesus heard this, the comment of the centurion, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says there will be a great feast, a great table prepared And there will be Jews there, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
that, that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they will be there. But also, there will be people from the east and people from the west and people from the north and people from the south. All peoples, representatives from all peoples will be there at that feast. In other words, I believe everyone's invited. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All peoples are invited. Jews, Gentiles, everyone are invited to this marriage supper. The question becomes, will you accept the invitation? There's only one way to RSVP for the marriage supper. It's by placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Only followers of Jesus will be at the marriage supper because they've accepted the invitation by following God's Son. And so will you accept the invitation? Very quickly, turn to Luke 14. I want to show you a very interesting parable that speaks of invitations. Luke 14. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, this is Jesus, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to, those to, to, to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yokes of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. In other words, Jesus said, there are going to be people invited to a great feast in the kingdom of God that will not accept the invitation because they are consumed and distracted with the things of this world. Don't miss that. Listen, there are some of you in this room, you've been invited to be a part of the bride of Christ, but you've not received the invitation because you are consumed and distracted with life. And you just never get around to it. But here's the good news. Some who are invited... Many who are invited will accept the invitation. Look in Luke 14, verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And listen, still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So the king says, some people are much too distracted with life to receive the invitation. But oh, there are some who heard that the king of the universe invited them to come. And they accepted the invitation. And I love what the servant said to his master. Still there is room. Can I tell you this today? 
If you've never accepted the invitation to be a part of the bride of Christ, to look forward to this marriage supper of the Lamb, still there is room. And today can be the day when you accept this invitation. And so I believe all people are invited. But only some will accept. And the question becomes, will you accept the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb?